Jesus interrupting everything. Uh, remember the story. Remember the Christmas story is a lot more chaotic and messy and dark than we typically remember from our Advent seasons, nativity stories, um, and our Christmas carols. Jesus interrupts our sadness with his presence. He's called Emmanuel, God with you. Uh, he interrupts our little kingdoms, our little power, our little ways of doing life. He interrupts that with his kingship. He's called the King of the Jews. In that passage, and then he interrupts our sin with his grace. Um, that that trajectory, the storyline, the plot line that your and my lives would have taken uh, if you are connected to Jesus. He actually bends that plot line back to a place where it ends with a happy ending, with life, with joy. Um, and so he interrupts our sin with his grace because he's called Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus in the Greek, and uh, and that name means God saves sinners. And so that's what we talked about last week. We're talking about Jesus again tonight. Maybe this is familiar to you. Um, it's the passage of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, without further ado, why don't we stand up, read it, and then we'll see whether you're familiar with it or not when we, when we take it to this. This is uh, on your outline, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 4, uh, This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give you, if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, Jesus, something that I know uh, all of my friends here tonight share in common with me is that we have a very short shelf life to our faithfulness to you. We have maybe good intentions sometimes. We have desire. We want to be different. But 
Temptation keeps tripping us up. We keep giving into it. We don't want to fight. Life is easier when we don't, we tell ourselves. And so we have a track record of exhaustion and frustration and discouragement and feeling completely powerless. Uh, but, Jesus, here you are the great war veteran who kills the enemy and limps off the battlefield. And so we pray tonight we would see you as beautiful. We pray that we that hearing your story here would actually truly in real life tonight and tomorrow and this week change the way we battle temptation. Now, that will not happen unless you do it. And so we say, Lord, have mercy tonight on us. And we know you love to do that, and so we pray with confidence in your name. Amen. All right, let me take a seat. So a lot of you in the room have been to fall conference, or a summer conference at, uh, at Laguna Beach in Florida with RUF. I was an intern. I did Stewart's job for three years um, right after I was in college at University of Georgia. And so I got to go to a lot of summer conferences. We had to go both weeks of summer conference. And long story short, all those little seminars they do in the mornings, if you've been to summer conference, they do little, like, I think you do two seminars every morning, like probably 15 or 20 different topics you can choose from. And by the, after three years of two weeks apiece uh, during those three years, I've been to just about every seminar. And so my very last summer conference uh, before going to seminary, I went to the seminar called Jesus, who he is, what he did, why it matters, and I was shocked what I found, um, because in that tiny, itty-bitty little room where the Jesus seminar was going on, there was me and eight other people. The shocking thing is not that. The shocking thing was that when you looked at how big the other seminars were, finding God's will or knowing God's will, kind of dis- big decisions, major, job, marriage, that seminar had about 150 people in it. And then the sex, marriage, dating seminar had about 200 or more people in it. And the campus minister um, who was doing the Jesus seminar, he was visibly saddened by that. He said something that I've thought a lot about ever since he said it. He said, maybe we wouldn't be so paralyzed with fear about our futures and about our decisions if we knew Jesus better. Maybe we wouldn't be so clueless about how to love other people or so, feeling so impotent in how to love other people in our relationships if we knew Jesus. And, and he wasn't saying the Finding God Seminar is bad. Don't hear that. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't guilt-tripping anybody. He wasn't saying it's bad to want to know about dating, sex, and marriage. Those are great. God talks a lot about this. So if you've been, you're off the hook. So he wasn't guilt-tripping us. What he was saying is, could it be there's a connection between being Christians who spend all our time on all of these peripheral things, like, I want to know how, to fight sin. I want to know how to date. I want to know how to make a decision. I want to know how to pray. But what gets lost in the mix there is Jesus. Could there be a connection between the rat race of figuring out all the answers to those questions and our anxieties, our paralyzing fears, our frustrations, our ignorance about life? Could there be a connection between that and not knowing uh, much about Jesus? Here's why I think people aren't inclined to go to things like the Jesus Seminar and why for two and a half years I didn't go to that seminar. Sometimes it sounds impractical. You say, okay, well, tonight's sermon's on Jesus. It might seem impractical. You're like, well, that's not down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, like, how is it going to help me tomorrow, morning or tonight with temptation or whatever. 
The temptation is to think that it's impractical to talk about Jesus, whereas it's practical to talk about all the other how-to stuff. But that's actually, it's actually not very true. Because Matthew, he doesn't start his story of Jesus off with techniques of how to fight sin and how to fight temptation. All those things that tripped us up this week. He starts with a story about Jesus fighting temptation. Jesus' battle against the devil, against temptation. Not your battle, not mine. And so that's, that's important for us to see on the front end. This is a time where Matthew's going to say, hey, put down your pens for a minute. Don't take any notes uh, about how you can beat sin. Sit back, watch, and let your jaw drop at what Jesus, the hero, the war veteran, the warrior, at what he does uh, in this uh, event with the devil. And then, and only then, after we've, we've appreciated him, seen him, loved him, felt safer because of him, more courageous because of him, like we can live louder because of him, only then does he ever talk about what it looks like to fight temptation in our own lives. Quick little story. When I was a kid, um, there was a lot of things my dad wanted me to watch him and mimic in my own life, like chores or how to talk respectfully to my mom or whatever. And he was living his life as a model or example for me, and I was supposed to dutifully follow that. But there was also times when I wasn't supposed to do, my dad didn't expect me to do what he did. I was supposed to just sit back, take it in, and be amazed at it. There was a time when me and my friends were playing in the front yard in our neighborhood, and this was like a very safe suburban neighborhood. Um, but these, uh, I was probably like 12 or so, these teenagers uh, drove by and had a gun uh, I don't know if it was real or not, but anyway, they pointed it at us, and then um, we're driving by with it pointed up in the air. My dad was in the yard, and he saw that, and first thing I know is I hear tires screeching of our car in our driveway as he drives out off after these kids, and we didn't see him again for about 45 minutes. He comes back later, and he tells me how he and a neighbor got their cars, cut these kids off, ran them into a front yard, pinned them down on the ground, called 911, and waited until the police came and arrested them. <laughs> now, why did my dad tell me this story? Did he tell me that story to say, hey, Ben, when someone comes by with a gun, this is the technique of what you do. <laughs> Chase after them, pin them down, call them down. No, no, no. This is my dad saying, when I'm out in the yard with you and your friends, I have your back. And hearing that story from my dad meant I played differently after that moment. Me and my, my buddies, we felt safer out in the yard. We felt more courageous. We were willing to go to a little bit further away from the house than we were before because we knew when my dad is home, he has our back. And it changed the way we did life. This is a moment. This is a story. This is an event where Matthew's saying that too. This absolutely affects your life. It's absolutely practical, but... It's about Jesus before it's about you. And so um, we're going we're gonna to kind of look at three angles on that. It's on your outline, as usual, our dilemma, our enemy, and our hero. Um, those are the three things that we're going to talk about. And first is our dilemma. Now, our dilemma is this, in short. We come from a long line of people who give in to temptation really easily. What was your week like? Was it like my week? What were the decision points, the turning points, the forks in the road that life presented you with this week? What, what did you do with the annoying roommate or the annoying boyfriend or girlfriend or parent when they called and you were tempted either to choose the path of least resistance, passivity, backing away, ease, not engaging them, or did you choose to love them? 
What about when you got ambushed by sexual desires or fantasies or emotional fantasies or whatever, and, and the temptation is, walk down this path. Savor this sweet taste. Keep exploring. Keep pushing. Or did you turn and run away? Or the moments, do you choose laziness, disengagement, procrastination, putting off? Or did you choose responsibility, diligence, being a faithful steward of what you've been given? What's your story with temptation this past week? And how has it left you? Has it left you self-righteous? Like, I passed all the tests. I got by. I'm gold. Or has it left you dejected? What's the point of even trying to fight? Same temptation every week. I give in every time. Should I just buckle up and wait till I die or Jesus comes back because it's just going to be like this? Discourage whatever else. Where are you? What has your relationship with temptation done to you this week? Where has it left you? So these are the temptations, the background noise of our lives. It's always there. It's always whispering. It's always poking and prodding in at us. It's like jumping out on the path and grabbing us in there. So if we're going to, if it's always around us, if it's always kind of grabbing at us, we better know what it is. So what is temptation? If you have a Bible, turn to James uh, 1. James gives a really great definition. James is the, the little brother of Jesus, and he says, uh, each person is tempted in, in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted uh, when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. He says, to to cover his basis, he comes back and he says, but let no one think that God is the one tempting you, because God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, here's what he means by that. Temptation in and of itself isn't sin. Temptation kind of, I don't know, it stirs up the sin in our hearts. James says uh, temptation is alluring, enticing, uh, whispering, fooling us, drawing out the sin in our hearts, to go down a certain path. That's what temptation um, is. It appeals to the evil in our hearts. It's compatible with the evil in our hearts. It finds a, a match, an e-harmony match. Oh, I'm great for you. Come out and play. That's what temptation is. And that's why he says God can't do it because there is no evil in God's heart. And so temptation for Jesus is, is a little bit different than for us, and we'll talk about that in a second. But that's what temptation is. Think about it like this. Temptation is like really like a really heavy rainfall, like a monsoon. Now, really heavy rainfall isn't necessarily bad in and of itself on the face of it, but you guys live in the desert. You saw what August was like here. When really heavy rainfall falls on dirt, on, on ground that it has no vegetation on it, what happens? It erodes. It cuts into the land. It, it carves into the land. It builds canyons, streams, rivers. What begin as little streams, uh, Ann and I were back at Dripping Springs one day in, a, in one of those little monsoons, and the road, it was like, in the span of 20 minutes, there's a river across the road, and it's like, ground is caving in on the left and right. That's what temptation is like. The rain that falls on barren ground, it begins to cut streams and rivets and ruts into the ground, and next time it rains, guess where all the water goes? Into the ruts it's already cut. It's like the Grand Canyon. The water always goes into the stream at the bottom of the canyon. Temptation is like that. You guys are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. I'm 32 years old. By this point in our lives, there's some pretty deep canyons on our hearts. Water goes, temptation goes to the same places, right? There's patterns to it. You're an irritable person, or you're 
you're easily tempted by this or that. Food is a big struggle for you. Sex is a big struggle for you. Uh, telling the truth is a big struggle for you. Relationships are a big struggle for you. The ruts. Where are your ruts? Where does the water of temptation flow in your life? Where has it carved you out and deformed you? And where has it carved me out and deformed me? Where does the water flow when it rains really hard? Every day, little difficulties. You have some physical issue, a sickness, a disability, cognitive disability. You're not as smart as your roommates, your other friends, and you have to work doubly as hard. Those are the little triggers. That's like the rainfall that comes down. Does it produce in you grumbling, bitterness, um, God is cursing me, or does it produce uh, humility, desperation, dependence? Uh, little things like you have a professor that's not playing ball with you. He's ruining your life. He's making, making graduation really hard for you, making a test really hard for you, whatever else. That's the trigger point. How do you respond? Where does that water flow? Does it always go to the same places? So here's the dilemma just to cover that up, to, to cover that, to tie that back, back up. We live in a barren land. Our hearts are like barren. And the forecast says it's going to rain tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Does it make sense why I'm saying we have a dilemma? Right? Should we not expect the water to keep going in the same place as it always goes? Um, the question is, does Matthew stop there? Are we left discouraged, dejected, and stuck? Oh, throw up your hands. It's going to rain again. The water's going to go in the same place. Why bother? Well, Matthew doesn't stop with just kind of saying we're people who, um, who struggle with temptation because he begins doing this. And this is when uh, it's good to kind of look down at your little piece of paper because I'm going to ask you to kind of make some connections with me. Matthew starts making all of these little connection points between Israel's story. We've been talking, if you're new, to, if you're new here this night, we've been talking about Israel's story a lot, God's people in the Old Testament. He makes all these connection points between Israel and Jesus and between you and Jesus. Here's what I'm talking about. Uh, here's the first connection point. Just like Israel passed through the Red Sea, Jesus passes through uh, Red Sea on the way to the Promised Land. Jesus goes through the Jordan River on his way to the Promised Land in his baptism. Just like Israel, the Spirit drives Israel into the wilderness, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. For Israel, 40 years. For Jesus, 40 days. The ways Israel was tempted, the ways you are tempted, is the same the way Jesus was tempted. Manna, i.e., Jesus, you're out here. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Where is God? Why is he not providing for you? You better make bread. God has left you high and dry. You better take matter into your, matters into your own hands. Same thing with Israel. The last thing, the resistance to temptation, is the same between Israel and Jesus. Jesus, when he starts quoting these verses in the passage, he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. When he says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting stuff from Israel's story that we talked about a few weeks ago, Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is pulling quotes back uh, from their experience into that. Here's the point. You remember the sermon series, God's story and your story. Matthew is weaving those two things tightly together into a piece of yarn. They're the same thing. God's story is becoming your story. Your story is becoming God's story. Jesus is taking up your life, your story, your plot line, your trajectory, and he's living it. Uh, right before our eyes. So, those are the connections between his story, their story, and your story. That's kind of like, I guess the connections Matthew's making there. What's the anatomy of the temptation? And we'll kind of start looking at the passage a little more carefully here. 
The anatomy of how temptation happens is this. The devil looks at Jesus 40 days into the wilderness. Let that sink into your mind. 40 days. What's the longest you've been without food or water? I don't know. Maybe 48 hours for me. Maybe three days, some kind of weird stuff begins to happen. Six weeks, no food. Or didn't, sorry, I didn't say no water, but it said no food for 40 days. Six weeks of no food. Hallucination. 40 days in the desert. Cotton mouth, cracked lips, sunburn. Probably could barely even drag yourself along the line. Get the picture in your mind. Jesus at his weakest point imaginable. Day after 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 day, the devil does nothing. But 40 days, he shows up. And he says, if you're the son of God, where's your father? Now, why does the devil, why does the devil say, if you're the son of God? The devil knows he's the son of God. Tons of times, the, de- the demons, the devil, they all say, son of man, what have you to do with us? They know he's the son of God. Jesus knows he's the Son of God. Why does he say, if you're the Son of God? This is important because he does the same thing with you. He did it with you this week. He does it with me this week. Why does he say, if you're the Son of God? Because he's saying to Jesus, the very last words Jesus heard before he goes into the wilderness are whose words? His Father's. God's. And what does God say? You are my Son, my beloved. I am well pleased in you. What are the very next words that vibrate Jesus' eardrum. Forty days later, God has just said, you are my son, I'm well pleased with you. Next words he hears, if you're the son. The devil's saying, if you're the son, where the heck is your father? No food, no water, you look like you're going to die. Make bread. Take matters into your own hands. God has left you high and dry without life. Make life. Bring yourself back to life. I will provide for you, Jesus. Just you remember Adam and Eve in the garden. I'll be a father to you. That's the devil's strategy. I will be a father to you. I will take care of you. I will tell you the truth. I will give you what you want. I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you the world. I'll give you glory. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What a fatherly thing for Satan to tell the sons and daughters of God, the son of God, the sons of God, the daughters of God. That's what he does. He did it with Jesus. Does it sound familiar? Character assassination against God himself. That's what the devil is up to. The question is, when that rain, and that's like hurricane force, gale rain, comes down on Jesus' heart, what happens? Does the water erode to the same familiar streams and rivers that it does when we hear those words? You 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 know, obedience is death. Following God's will, uh, submitting to his plan, loving him, pursuing him, being pursued by him, that is boring, that is dull. I'll go this other way. Those are the ways we give in. That's where the water flows when this rain comes on us. Where did it go when it fell on Jesus' heart? At his weakest point, private, no one would have known, nobody would have known, had he given in. It was just Jesus and the devil. Jesus told this story to him later. Nobody would have known what happened when it rained on him. The ground held. Why did the ground hold? The difference in Jesus' heart and our heart is his heart is like a rainforest full of vegetation. 
love for God, righteousness, justice, fairness. He sees things as they are. He doesn't fall for the trap the way we do all the time. He can tell good from evil. He can tell life from death. Even at his weakest point, when all the cards are stacked against him, when he has no resources, and he he obeys. He's faithful. He will not stab his father in the back with a knife, accusing him of abandonment. That's where the water goes. The water is absorbed, as it were. It doesn't cut ruts into his heart because it's so full of life, so full of vegetation. And that's the difference in his heart and ours. So we'll push on to a really quick observation that with Jesus we see really clearly it's not just temptation that's our problem, that's our dilemma. The fact that this water keeps going to the same place, that's not just our dilemma, there's a person behind it. Because when Jesus looks at Israel's biggest problem and when he looks at your biggest problem and when the Bible talks to you about what life is like today, tomorrow, it always says things like resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Wear the spiritual armor of Jesus to protect yourself against the darts of the devil. The Bible looks at you and it sees something more than you and I see in our lives. We just chalk it up to I was tired or, or whatever else I gave him a temptation. God looks at you and he sees the devil in the picture. And Jesus looks at Israel and sees the devil in the picture. He sees somebody behind it fanning Israel's sin into flame, always causing them to circle back and be stuck in this cycle. Here's the point. Why does Matthew care to tell us this? I was watching um, Cops, which I like to do back when I had TV. Uh, and there was this one episode. I just had like 10 minutes to watch it, so it was kind of like just tuned in for a few minutes and then um, had to go. But... I see this guy about my age. He's in this kind of nice house somewhere in Florida, and these group of detectives come to his door. They knock on his door. He comes to the door, and he they present their badges. They tell him, you know, the so-and-so police department. And he, he starts going off like, oh, my gosh, is this the mortgage that I didn't pay? Or is this the child support I'm behind on? And they're like, no, no, no. It's not the mortgage. It's not child support. Can we come in? We need to sit down and talk to you. So the guy has no idea why they're there. They go sit down, and the detectives tell this guy, um, a month ago, your wife hired a hitman to kill you. Tonight is the night that they'd arranged for the guy to sit outside your door and wait for you to come home and kill you. And the guy goes white. And you could tell immediately what was happening in his mind is his whole life was being reprioritized. All of his problems were being kind of rearranged and, and reprioritized. No longer was his mortgage his biggest problem, or his child support his biggest problem, or his bad job his biggest problem. His biggest problem was literally that night there would be a man there to murder him. Those, his only hope was that there was a group of detectives watching his back, fighting for him for 30 days, and he didn't even know about it. That's why he was alive. It's the same thing here. Jesus looks at our problem and he sees somebody in the picture. Somebody in the picture. Here's a practical implication. That if you, if you have not been made alive in Jesus, the reason Christianity doesn't seem plausible to you isn't just because you haven't heard the best argument yet. It's not just because of what's in your past. It's because Paul says the devil has blinded the eyes of of those who are not alive in Jesus. He's blinded you. It's not because it doesn't sound convincing enough or plausible enough or whatever else enough. It says there's somebody involved. You're a captive. You can't do anything about your predicament apart from Jesus. 
And for believers, it says, look, the reason why temptations are so powerful is that this isn't just this like robotic thing that drives itself. There's a person behind it, pushing it, fanning it in flame. You know those temptations, those thoughts you have that you have no idea where they came from. You don't have any idea how they got in your mind. But they're there. And Jesus says, this is why. Now for believers, it's different. This is a defeated enemy for those who are united to Jesus because you share his victory. So it's different there uh, for believers. We're not slaves to him anymore. He's released us from that captivity. But we need to know this, that the reason your friends, your roommates uh, might find uh, Christianity very unappealing isn't just because they haven't read the greatest book yet or they're waiting on the next good argument. Uh, There's something more involved than that. So the last thing I want to talk about is our hero. I told you at the beginning that story about my dad. It wasn't just so I could mimic him. It's so I could love my dad all the more so that I could live life more fully, more courageously, more freely out in my yard. And it's the same here. So let's finish by talking about our hero. Here's the reason Jesus is a hero. Heroes do something nobody else can do. Captain Sully landed the plane on the Hudson. No other pilot could do that. That's why he's still talked about today. George Washington somehow started a country, kicked the King of England out. Nobody else could do that or would do that. That's why he's remembered today. The heroes you know about, that's why they're remembered today. They do something no one else can do. Jesus, as the Son of God, does something that no other Son of God ever did. Adam didn't do it in the garden. He failed. Israel didn't do it in the wilderness. They failed. All the kings, all the prophets, all the priests didn't do it. They failed. We don't do it. We failed. One person did it. One person withstood. One person fought. One person defeated. Jesus alone. He's the hero that lands the plane when nobody else can. He doesn't fall into the trap. He's not a coward like we are, like I am. I don't want to fight. I I fancy myself William Wallace from Braveheart. Charge the line. Kill the enemy. But I'm like the guy on the back line. It's like when push comes to shove, I don't want to fight. I don't want to bleed. Jesus is the guy when nobody else is on the battlefield charging the enemy on our behalf, like those detectives. Fighting for you against an enemy you didn't even know you had, maybe so that you can live, so that you can go free. And again, like I said, all the cards were stacked against him. And so, uh, here's, here's the question we need to end on. What does this have to do with us? Because there is something, although this is primarily about Jesus, there's also things we take away from here. We say, okay, after we've seen Jesus as my hero, after I've seen him defeating the enemy, freeing me to be able to fight What do I do? What can we glean from this in terms of fighting temptation in our own lives? There's three things this story applies to you tonight in a really practical, specific way. The first is identity theft. This is what I mean. We usually think about that word in a negative sense. Someone takes your name, your identity, your credit card, and they start living under your name, making decisions under your name, and you... You receive all the death from that. You receive the poverty, the bad credit. All your money goes away. Your reputation suffers. Flip the metaphor, though. Identity theft. Someone takes your name, takes your identity, takes your finances, and all of a sudden, you start seeing your reputation improve. You start seeing relationships reconcile. You start seeing money coming into your account. All because someone took your story, your identity, and started living it better than you ever could or would or do. Identity theft. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's why Matthew makes all these little connections between your story and his story. 
Israel's story and his story. Jesus stole your identity. He lived it better than you ever would, and then he hands it back to you with the good credit, the good relationships, the money in the bank. You get all that he did, all the effects of that. So, this is how he's your hero. And it means our, our failure to walk well in our own temptations in the wilderness don't get the last word anymore. If you're a Christian, your failure doesn't get the last word anymore because Jesus took your story and he lived it better in the wilderness. The second thing, that's the first thing I didn't detect, how this story matters to us tonight. The second is this. The passage does shed light about how we, how we resist sin. Here's one way the passage helps us. God is using this passage tonight as part of the way he's going to revegetate your heart, plant seeds in your heart, that in the proper conditions he will grow up. Little saplings, little fragile seedlings that will grow up, that will begin to hold the soil in place when it rains, when you're tempted. And you will find yourself over the course of your life if you give yourself to Jesus in faith, in repentance, adjusting your life around his. If you do that, God says these little saplings, these seeds will take root, they will grow, and guess what? That's the only way you control erosion. It's the only way. You have to plant something to hold the soil in place. And, and, and one of the ways God does that is by showing you Jesus uh, in his heart in the midst of temptation. But also other scripture. Uh, Jesus, Jesus knows his Bible. It's not in a, in a way like, oh, I know my textbook. He knows God's story. He can tell good from bad, life from death. Can we? Only by practice. Only by familiarity with that story. Otherwise, we will consistently confuse the two. That's why we end up dying the more we think we're coming alive and we pursue sin. We think it's going to bring us alive and all it does is kill us. And so, uh, that's another way in Scripture uh, that God revegetates the landscape of our heart, reverses that erosion, and so the water begins to go in different places now. And the soil holds and the last thing is this. Jesus' battle uh, means that when we fail in our battles with temptation, he is sympathetic. And that's what Courtney read earlier. I really recommend um, letting that be. If you're confused about uh, how to read the Bible, where to start, why not start there this week? Why not start in Hebrews 4? Meditate on that. Marinate in that. Let it sink into you until you smell like that passage. Because it's talking about a God who was tempted in all the ways you were, who knows what it's like in your skin, in the nasty places. That's what it says. He is a high priest tempted in every way. Therefore, he's able to deal gently, gently with those who fail. An old British pastor, J.C. Ryle, uh, says this, and this will begin to wind us uh, down, but think about this. This is what J.C. Wilde says about Jesus, this high priest who sympathizes. He knows what life is like in your skin, even the places we're ashamed about. He gets it. He says this, The sympathy of Jesus is a truth which ought to be uniquely dear to all believers. They will find in it a mine of comfort. They should never forget that they have a mighty friend in heaven who feels for them in all their temptations, who can enter into all their spiritual anxieties. Are they ever tempted by Satan to distrust God's care and goodness? We talked about that, right? So was Jesus. Are they ever tempted to presume on God's mercy and run into danger without warrant? So was Jesus. 
Are they ever tempted to commit some one great private sin for the sake of some advantage? So was Jesus. Are they ever tempted to listen to some misuse or out-of-context use of Scripture to justify what we want to do? So was Jesus. He is just the Savior that attempted people require. Let them flee to him for help and spread before him all your troubles. You will find his ear ever ready to hear and his heart ever ready to feel. He can understand your sorrows. That's what it means that he's a sympathetic high priest. And so, to wrap us up, what did we say? Jesus, this story connects to you through identity theft. He takes your story. He lives it better. You get the results of his credit. He takes the results of your credit. The second thing is, the only way to control erosion is by a revegetated, a well-rooted heart. Um, And the third thing is, Jesus can sympathize with you on the worst of the worst days, when you're at the end of your rope, And the last thing is this, you can fight. If Jesus has defeated the devil, he did it to free you to fight temptation. You can fight. You can say no. You can turn. Not easy. Doesn't mean we won't believe. But you can. You get to. You're free. You're free to struggle, not struggling to be free. And that is good news. Because it means you're not a slave anymore. It means you get to be about the business of living your life, not answering to temptation or answering to the devil. And so, this week, where do you need to know that Jesus, your hero, is standing in the reign of temptation with you? Standing in the reign with you, in the midst of your temptation. Where do you need to be encouraged to be strong because of his victory? Where has he opened up an escape route for the temptations you find yourself always giving into? Where is he planting his word and his promises and his goodness in your heart for little saplings to grow up to hold the ground so that in 10 years you are a different person than you are now? Where are those places? Jesus presumes this is true because he says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And he gives you his armor. He gives you his spiritual armor to resist the devil. And so those are the ways we can think about those passages. Let's pray um, that he will revegetate our hearts, that he will plant seeds and grow us, that we can begin to fight temptation the way Jesus did. Lord, we do pray that we thank you that we are free to struggle. We are not struggling to be free. Those of us who you have made alive, I pray for those who uh, don't know if they're alive. I pray for those who are struggling to be free. I pray that you would convince them and persuade them gently that they will never be able to free themselves. You must do the freeing, but you are the one who came to liberate, the the one who came to release from captivity. So would you do these things for us? And for those of us who are alive, would you persuade us that we get the privilege of fighting? We can take shots at our sin, we can throw punches at it, we can say no, and we get to enjoy seeing the water go in new places uh, because of you and what you've done. We ask all of this in your name with great thanksgiving. Thank mm-hmm. you.